Good evening, everybody. Welcome, welcome to class five of Unfinished Tales. We have uh, we have gotten through the first stage material together, and now we are off for a comparatively uh, brief excursion into uh, uh, into the second age. So, this uh, is what we're going to do tonight. Uh, there's a lot of material to discuss, and I wasn't sure. Uh, I don't. I don't have very much prepared on the description of Numenor or on the uh, the the notes on the kings. Um, I, there are some things we can talk about there. I'm very happy to sort of throw that open to you guys. I would encourage you now, um, if there are topics that things that really jumped out at you or questions that you have about the non Alderion and Arendis section of today's reading, that you know, chapter one and chapter three of part two, uh, please do go ahead and type those into the questions box and let me know um, uh, stuff that you would like to talk about. I, I'd be happy to. Um, but there aren't too many things, one or two, but there aren't too many things uh, that I wanted to say about that. One thing I wanted to share with you um, is, uh, yeah, Kate says it's just interesting uh, noting that Numenor is shaped like a star. Yes, yes, it's, uh, you know, um, I agree, Kate, that that's kind of a nice touch, right? It's the land of the star. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I wanted to share with you uh, a graphic uh, made by uh, by Matt Shaw of uh, Silmarillion Seminar fame, um, which I think is a really handy kind of graphic and really uh, sort of helps us to see um, the progression of the kings and the way that this works. Um, uh, that just to, in case you can't, I know it's a it's, it's a little bit small here uh, on this page, um, but the, the you know the total line here is the length of their lives. Uh, the red is the time that they reigned, and the yellow is the amount of uh, time that they spent alive after they had resigned uh, from the scepter uh, to their uh, to their child. So this is pretty cool. Uh, you can see here here's Tar Ankalame, uh, who is the daughter of Alderion and Arendis, who you remember has the longest. Does that mention the fact that she has the longest reign other than uh, Elros? Tarminutar, and you can see uh, she was comparatively young and lived relatively long, and so we see her her red line there uh, being being pretty long. We can see Tar Meneldur, uh, Aldarion's dad, who uh, resigned to him unexpectedly, who has the longest yellow stretch here of any of the other kings. He's the the, the one who resigned earliest in his life. Um, uh, certainly compared to the time when he died. Um, so anyway, uh, the, one of the things that you can really see very clearly here, I know that sometimes you know lists of numbers on a page don't necessarily really convey much to you, but you can really see the shape here, especially with Matt's helpful pointers here. This is Tar Antonomir, the first guy with no yellow bit. Uh, that is the first guy uh, who, uh, apart from Elros, of course, um, who did not give up the scepter prior to his death. Uh, and uh, and you can see the the sharpness of the decline here uh, from Tara Tanamir all the way down here uh, to uh, uh, of course uh, uh, Matt's given their um, their their elvish names here um, anyway yeah so this is uh, this is uh, I, I, I I think this is this is really helpful uh, and useful to see um, now the one thing that this graph really kind of brings home to me. Uh, I mean, this is not a, 
you know, a, a, a sort of a deep piece of insight. But of course, we know that the Valar are the ones who have gifted the Numenorians with unusually long life. And you know, there's the discussion in the notes there in the in the section on the kings about the length of their lives and how um, there, you know, uh, Tolkien had been. Uh, toying with the discrepancy between the lifespan of the line of Elros compared to, you know, sort of your average Numenorean and all that stuff. Um, however, nevertheless, the overall fact that the Numenorean's lives have been prolonged by gift from the Valar is clear and made uh, dramatically clear when you see how sharply and quite regularly uh, it it drops back every generation less uh, there once the rebellion uh, begins there with Taratanamir. So, what does this show us? Well, you know, to me, one of the things that it makes me think of is... Well, I don't know how, what to say. Uh, uh, what were the Valar thinking is one question that I sort of have. That is, it's something that I find odd about the Numenorean story. Um is that the gift of long life seems to me like a rather peculiar gift um, uh, for the Valar to have given to the men in the first place. So, okay, you're mortals. You're not to seek the undying lands. You are not to strive for eternal life. For mortality is the gift given to you by a Luvatar. Okay. So we're going to help that situation, you know, help you be all reconciled to that fact by artificially prolonging your life so that you're kind of a little bit like the Eldar, but not, you know, so we're going to make you live long enough to, you know, sort of imagine you're going to go on for, for, for a really long time. What, make it harder to leave? I mean, it just, it, 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 the rationale, um, is really hard for me to get. It's something I've actually never gotten. Um, so this isn't really uh, sort of me making a point so much as asking a question. If any of you can explain it to me, I'd be delighted to hear it. Um, it's one of those things, actually. I mean, if I had to make a list of uh, mistakes the Valar made, and there's a, there's a list, and it's a relatively serious list. I mean, they, they, they screwed up some pretty serious things. Um uh, this is definitely among them. In fact, arguably, um, it seems to me that they're twice making a mistake here. Not only am I not sure that the prolonging of the of their days was a good idea, I'm not sure the island of Numenor in the first place was a good idea. Um, especially since the first mistake I would put on the list of the Valar is the Valinor thing in the first place, bringing the Eldar over... Uh, and uh, shutting them away from the rest of the middle of 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 Middle Earth in Valinor, um, I, I think that that's yeah. Arthur is just pointing to that too. I, you know I, that seems to me to have been a pretty serious mistake, and if anything, to be kind of contrary to what it seems like uh, based on the evidence. It seems that Iluvatar put them in the world to do in the first place. Um, but then they basically do it again. You know, let's uh, let's do sort of Valinor 2.0. Let's separate. Let's reward the good humans by separating them from the rest of the world instead of having them, you know, sort of go forth into the world and bless it. Which again seems to be uh, uh, much closer, anyway, to what the elves were supposed to be doing, rather than being uh, sequestered over there in Valinor. Um, so anyway, it, it's I, I have. Um, I have always found that kind of uh, 
found these things kind of um, kind of puzzling. Um, Scott says, I, I guess the Valar assumed that the wisdom of men would wax with the longer years as with the Eldar. Possibly. Um, possibly. Uh, and that seems to be true, in some senses, anyway. I mean, the great achievements of the Numenorians, um, you know, their very great skill, you know, which we see, you know, the distant echoes of in The Lord of the Rings, right? You know, all of those, uh, those ancient you know, just post-Numenorean relics, um, things like, not the Palantiri, because those are older, but, um, but things like, you know, the walls of Minas Tirith and the walls of, 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 uh, of, of Orthanc, um, are, you know, one example, Scott, of, of certainly one kind of wisdom, you know, their, 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 their capability, what they were able to learn, what they were able to master, the kinds of things they were able to do. Certainly, they grew in skill, they grew in some kinds, at least, of wisdom, they grew in learning. Um, but did they grow in virtue, you know? Obviously, long term, no. Though, of course, one thing to keep in mind is that it is a very long term. One way in which uh, graphics like this are misleading is they make everything look kind of brief. You know, uh, like look at that—it just drops straight off. Right? Well, it just drops straight off over the course of, you know, what fifteen hundred years. So, um, yeah, it, it's quick uh, in one sense, but of course, not so quick in another. Um, but um, anyway, I, I I do think that. Um, I'm not saying that the the downfall of Numenor is the fault of the Valar, you know, that this is sort of the obvious repercussions of the particular choice that they gave, but simply that, to me, the choice is a peculiar one in the first place. Um, That they seem to be, they, the Valar, seem not necessarily to be rewarding the the, the Edain after their kind. Um, What they seem to have made them by creating the island of Numenor and and uh, uh, and separating them aside and giving them a longer life is to make them like, you know, a sort of a low calorie version of the Eldar. You know, it's like this, they're like you know the Junior League <clears throat> Eldar. Um, their relationship, you know, they they have now this hierarchical relationship, which is kind of similar. I mean, remember the way that Hurin saw himself related to the Eldar in the first age, right? Um, you know, he he definitely saw the Yadine as you know, as as lower, and he was fine with that. You know, we are the you know they are the great and mighty and wise ones. We can't compare with them. Um, our lives are brief, and what we can do is small in comparison. Um, but he was fine. Like that was, it was that was to him the natural order, and that was okay. Um, he had we, now we have that uh, not not exactly the same. The gap between them is not nearly so big. Um, but again, this this sort of you know now we're gonna we're gonna separate them off and we're gonna make them kind of like the Eldar, but 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 not fully. Um, anyway, it, it seems to me kind of puzzling. It seems to be sort of turning them into junior Eldar rather than giving them a blessing which is more suitable to mankind. I don't know exactly what that would be. Um, but, um, yeah, Charlie says, if man is given another chance to live in Eden, is it the fault of the powers if he blows it again? Well, no, but you can't get a second Eden. I mean, to say you give another chance to live in Eden, Eden isn't going to be Eden. 
without uh, it's the innocence of Adam and Eve that makes Eden Eden. I mean, you can put somebody in a paradise, um, but it's not going to be paradise uh, if th- that's why I'm saying you know do they grow in virtue? Um, uh, a lot. A long life. If you are, I mean, think of the, um, think of the, you know, the downward spirals that we have, you know, that we see some characters go into in Tolkien's world. Um, you know, mortality is sometimes a blessing for everybody involved. Um, I don't know. And, you know, Sharon says they still don't get the nature of man. You know, Sharon, that's almost the conclusion that I'm forced to come to there. Um, that it seems to me that the gift of long life uh, to Elros and his um, and his uh, descendants is evidence of <clears throat> of the of the Valar not getting the sort of the essence of men and, 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 and what mankind is supposed to be about. Um, there's almost a sense, I mean, I don't know that Elros actually made any particular objections, but I mean, it would seem to be almost as if, you know, Elros says, I'm going to choose mortality. Um, I'm going to choose to be a human. And the, and they say, okay, great. You're going to live for 500 years. And he's like, no, no, wait, wait, wait. No, you don't understand. <laughs> I, I chose to be mortal. That's not the point. Um, anyway, um, uh, yeah, Ethan says they did relinquish their lives willingly until the coming of the shadow, which would seem to indicate that they were accepting of their fate as men. I agree. I agree. Um, yes, yes, that's right. And of course, I'm not really trying to say that like everything was awful from the beginning, of course, or that you know the longevity was a kind of curse, or again, that it's the Valar's fault that they fell. Um, just that even even forgetting the shadow, even forgetting what's going to eventually happen to Numenor, even just thinking of the case of Elros himself the gift of long life seems a peculiar one and one which doesn't really seem suited um to people to to humans um so anyway i that's um uh, again like i'm not sure how i'd improve on it you know i'm not sure it's an interesting kind of thought experiment what would be a gift more suitable uh, to the state of humans as they exist in the world as Tolkien describes it. And I'm not really sure exactly. Um, yeah, but uh, <laughs> Roy says, motor cars. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, you know, even putting them in putting them in a paradise. Um, oh, that sounds like a lovely idea. Um, but anyway, we'll we'll, we'll come back. Um, we'll come back to this. I, I, it's my hope that sort of thinking about this a little bit at the beginning will help us when we come to Eldarion and Arendus, because I think that this issue actually um, is involved a lot there. So let's we'll come back to this issue when we have a little bit more data uh, to work with in reading the story of Eldarion, but. Anyway, um, uh, so, you know, so, so, oh, by Scott's suggestion, tell them where they go when they die. You know, Scott, I was thinking of that too, but I don't think so. I don't think so. I, again, I think it's an essential part of the human condition not to know. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 I'm not sure actually that that one would be, um, 
that that one would be really a good idea either. But anyway, okay, let's move on. The other thing I wanted to do, and again, you know, we've been talking about the line of the kings here, sort of talking about the line of the kings. Um, there was one bit. There were a couple bits that I was that I'm interested in. Of course, I, I actually really quite like the description of the island of Numenor. Um, it's one of the only places where we're really invited to invest imaginatively into Numenor, and of course, it's very, um, you know, Numenor is such, anyway, to me anyway, such a luminous idea. Um, I find the concept of drowned Numenor, the way that it looms in the background throughout the Lord of the Rings, one of the most powerfully mythic ideas um, that lies behind Middle-earth as we see it in the Lord of the Rings. I, I find that such a powerful mythic idea. Um, and uh, the idea of actually getting a tour, a little, even a brief tour of Numenor, and being given the opportunity to see it through other eyes. And I find, of course, there's a risk in doing this. There's a risk that it loses some of its mythic appeal, that you don't want to know more. And remember, this is something that uh, Christopher Tolkien mentioned that Tolkien had talked about, you know, that, that there is, in fact, a risk there, that for some people, um, having, the, having that, that mythic quality undermined uh, by data and lore um, is, is, you know, will sometimes decrease the effect so, so anyway, I, I, I uh, um, but I, I haven't found it so. The way that I find the description, the reason I really like the description of Numenor is that I feel that, you know, and I've talked about this uh, on numerous other occasions, the fact that the, one of the, one of the real uh, strengths of the Lord of the Rings, one of the things that I think is one of the really, one of the real sources of its power as a story, is the way that it gets us invested, not just in the characters, not just in the story, but in Tolkien's world, in the world of Middle-earth that, that he creates. And the description of Numenor gives us, a, to, to a little bit of an extent, I think, the opportunity to kind of invest in uh, Numenor imaginatively itself, um, and I find that when it when it comes out of the distance, when it's not just this idea, this concept, um, almost an ideal, actually, not just an idea, but an ideal that looms off not only in the distance uh, but also in the past, um, and going there and seeing you know get, seeing the description of the land and learning a little bit more about its culture. I find, for me anyway, that it 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 helps me to um, uh, to invest imaginatively a little bit more. In particular, what it really helped with was helping me to imagine the moments when the story of the Numenorians does come in. That is, when Numenor is being used for something other than um, a sort of a remote and mythic idea. As, for instance, in Appendix A, when we get the story of the intervention of the Numenorians or of the armor, uh, you know, the 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 the, the landing of Arpharazon uh, and his initial conquering of Sauron, um, those kinds of moments, I, I am uh, I, I'm able to kind of connect with imaginatively much more. One passage that I definitely wanted to uh, to talk about with you, however, because I think this is a passage. Um, certainly a topic that tends to come up a lot, or at least I find people bring it up a lot in asking me questions, and I want to look at the Menal Tarma. Uh, the Menal Tarma, of course, is significant because this is the only sacred space that we, is the only worship space that we see in Tolkien's writings, uh, that is non-evil worship space. We get a temple to Morgoth, uh, but that's 
that's generally not w- what we mean. Here's the you know so here the, so this description uh, on the mental tarma is the only time we get actual religion described. You know there are references to you know feasts of Thanksgiving that are done in Valinor that happens, um, and we get some things which seem to have you know like the 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 you know the autumn feasting of the wood elves and the Hobbit might possibly have some kind of significance which might by some people be called religious in some sense, but we don't have actual religious practice. We don't have anything that looks like a church. We don't have uh, have have any of that kind of ritual or anything like that here. We get the only version of it that we see anywhere in the history of Middle-earth. Um, the observances in the worship of Iluvatar on the Mental Tarma in Numenor. So let's, um, let's look at this and see what, we, uh, see what we notice. For the summit was somewhat flattened and depressed, and could contain a great multitude, but it remained untouched by hands throughout the history of Numenor. No building, no raised altar, not even a pile of undressed stones ever stood there, and no other likeness of a temple did the Numenorians possess in all the days of their grace until the coming of Sauron. There no tool or weapon had ever been born, and there none might speak any word save the king only. Thrice only in each year the king spoke, offering prayer for the coming year at the Eru Kierme in the first days of spring, praise of Eru Iluvatar at the at the Eru Laitale in midsummer, and thanksgiving to him at the Eru Hantale at the end of autumn. At these times the king ascended the mountain on foot, followed by a great concourse of the people, clad in white and garlanded but silent. At other times the people were free to climb to the summit alone or in company, but it is said that the silence was so great that even a stranger, ignorant of Numenor and all its history, if he were transported thither, would have not would not have dared to speak aloud. No bird ever came there, save only eagles. If anyone approached the summit, at once three eagles would appear, and alight upon three rocks near to the western edge. But at the times of the three prayers they did not descend, remaining in the sky and hovering above the people. They were called the witnesses of Manwe, and they were believed to be sent by him from Amon to keep watch upon the holy mountain and upon all the land. Okay. Um, what do you notice here? What do you notice here? Um, some people are asking about the observance of religious practice in uh, the Lord of the Rings and everything. Um one of the major things, and this this is something that I think is, is sort of often misunderstood, that one of the primary factors that informed Tolkien, I mean, it's from everything I've read, the chief factor um, that informed the absence of religious ritual is his strict adherence to the framework that he had adopted. That is to say, these people... Are not, you know he he was going to do what the medievals did. See when medievals told stories, um, of you know told historical stories, um, they didn't have any clear sense of anachronism. That is to say, they, they they felt no compulsion to be true to the historical context of the story they were writing. And so when they're telling a story about ancient Troy, most medieval Trojan stories have the cities are uh, look and are structured, the societies are look and are structured just like medieval societies. People talk like medievals, dress like medievals, fight like medievals, um, and you know there's there's really no attempt to kind of get back into the into the accurate historical milieu. Tolkien, of course. Um, was not down with that part of medieval tori- storytelling. Um, 
And so he was, he had adopted a pre-Christian frame, a significantly pre-Christian frame. And so he was not going to put churches there. Um, and he made the... Now, of course, could he have depicted some kind of pre-Christian religious worship? Yes, he could. But he opted not to do that um, because he didn't want to... You know, he, he decided he didn't want to put pagan religion there. And by pagan, I'm using the word pagan in the medieval sense. That is to say, any, any uh, sort of pre-Christian polytheistic religious uh, uh, practice in, the, in a medieval context... Pagan is not an insult; it's a descriptor of some of, of all of the polytheistic pre-Christian uh, religions uh, in, uh, in 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 Europe and the Middle East. So anyway, um, uh, he didn't want to depict pagan worship because also, you know, this was <clears throat> this was an interesting kind of moment from a theological and historical standpoint. On the one hand, there are people present who. Okay, well, let me start the other way. On the one hand, there's been no revelation, right? We have no Bible. God has not revealed himself. So, so uh, I, you know, like the humans have, as far as we can tell, nothing to go on, theologically speaking. However, they are also surrounded, not surrounded, but they are encountering people who have a secondhand account of theological truth. They have... Hung, you know, many of them, the elves, of course, I'm talking about, have hung out with the angelic beings who were with Iluvatar in the creation of the world. Um, so they don't need, you know, the Bible to reveal to them the truth about who God is because they've just they've just heard about it from the folks who who, who were hanging out with him uh, at creation. So, um, so it's it's an interesting kind of place. So that's why I, I think the latter reason is why we have no pagan religions. Um, but the former reason, no revelation, no Bible, no, you know, because we're, 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 we're pre all of that. We're pre, uh, you know, we're pre Moses here. Um, not only pre Jesus, but pre Moses. Um, therefore we don't, uh, we don't get any Judeo Christian revealed religion, but we also don't get pagan religions. Um, at least not within the societies that the story focuses on, because those have sort of the legacy of the teachings of the elves who did know enough not to go there. So it's therefore we get this kind of religious void. And I'm I'm choosing my words carefully. They're not, not a spiritual void, but a religious void that is a void of actual religious practices on the part of people. Now, in Numenor, we get religious practices, and as I say, it's it's pretty famously the only holy site of this kind uh, that we get in the in all of the descriptions of Middle-earth. Um, now, tell me, but I think I was saying, or perhaps I already said, tell me what you notice about this. Tell me what strikes you about the description of the mental tarma here. Um... Uh, Don says that the uh, the 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 many threes would you know seem possibly to echo the Trinity. There's no uh, other obvious reason to have the threes. Um, Don, I agree. I think it's kind of a distant echo. I mean, I don't think it's uh, an allusion to it in the sense of you know the Numenorians like knew enough theology to know that God was a Trinity, and so I, I, I don't think that that's what we're seeing here. But Don, I agree. There is a conspicuous amount of uh, threes going on here, and that seems to be uh, uh, um, a a pretty uh, non coincidental thing as well. Um, okay, 
Um, uh, Tom asks an interesting question. In medieval representations of fairy, is there any trace of religion in fairy itself? I can't think of any. There are... You know, I mean, like, for instance, when Sir Gowan and the, in Sir Gowan and the Green Knight, when Sir Gowan is essentially in fairy, when he is at the castle of Sir Bersalek, and he's, um, uh, you know, so he, he's at their place, and he seems to be, in some sense, though it's hard to say in exactly what sense, in a fairy world, um, you know, the people there all attend mass and everything, um, uh, but I don't certainly... Tom, I wouldn't take from that. That is evidence that the the fairies are all, you know, sort of cheerfully taking communion too on their own. Um, in general, I mean, I'm trying to remember if I can think of examples of medieval fairy stories in which the fairies are either overtly pious or overtly impious. And I can't think of any examples of either one of those things. Anyway, sorry. Um... Uh, Yana says, I find it strange that the closest thing to a preacher is the king himself. Yes, there is no priest, right? The Numenorians have no priest. There is no priestly function. There is no priestly profession. Um, the king is also the high priest. Um, and and that, that does seem to be the role, Yana, that he has. And that's an interesting thing, too, um, that the king is the priest um, as well. Um, and it, it it is strange in one sense, but also sort of not strange, I think. There are a couple ways in which it's not strange. Um, one is um, um, one is simply the, f- the role that the king plays, it seems, in good Tolkienian societies where there are kings. Um, there are bad kings, obviously, um, but good kings and good kingships in Tolkien, um, there seems to be very much a sense in which the king is the, um, well, I was going to say father figure, but that's such a pale way of saying it, um, has that kind of paternal relationship, um, that kind of responsibility for and care for, you know, is in a semi-paternal relationship, um, a semi-parental relationship with the people as a whole um, and for that to be so for him to be then the spokesman for the people to Iluvatar at the um, at the you know the annual uh, festivals of uh, of you know prayer and praise and thanksgiving seems to me to kind of fit with that the kind of authority and I mean the kind, not, not 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 just the degree, but the kind of authority that good kings, um, you know, uh, 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 Aragorn, um, Elros, Tarminutar, uh, uh, you know, those kinds of kings uh, seem to have. Um, good. Neil, I agree. Two of the most striking elements are the silence and the eagles. Um, what do you guys make of the silence and the eagles? Um yeah, Sharon is observing, Sharon Hoff is observing that, uh, you know, the only stricture seems to be silence. But notice, Sharon, it's not a rule, right? They don't have to put, you know, a little, like, uh, 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 
hectoring signs on the way up to the mental tarma. Now remember, no talking when you get up there, right? Um, the place itself evokes silence, would evoke silence even from a stranger, right? Um, that itself, I think, is uh, is is a really fascinating um, uh, fact there. Um, also, I would say the um, uh, uh, the lack of the entire lack of building, um, not even not even the lack of uh, of of structure, you know, or art or something like that. This goes beyond iconoclasm. Uh, any kind of disturbance by human hands. Um, that, I think, is um, uh, striking. Very striking. Um, because yeah, I'm not 100% sure how to fit that into other things. It's, it's one of the things that I have a hard time with um, in reading this passage and really thinking about it is because this is almost a solitary data point, as I was saying, I've got, I've got nothing to compare it to, you know? So um, it's hard. I find it hard to find uh, in some ways to find a frame of reference um, for some of these things. But uh, anyway, um, yeah, as several people were pointing out that many uh, uh, ancient societies had priest kings absolutely no i mean that the combination of those role of those roles is not uh by any means uh um unique yeah good um yeah yeah um what do you make of the eagles what do you make of the eagles um Nancy says, are the eagles, you know, eagles with a capital E? Yes, I think they're definitely capital E eagles here. Um, yeah. Sorry, you guys are uh, typing lots of things, so I'm sort of looking looking through here. Um, uh, Thomas Butler says uh, the restrictions against you know any tools or building or speech are uh, all ways in which men direct their knowledge towards uh, towards commanding nature so in humility to Iluvatar's creation yeah I mean, Thomas the way I would put that together it seems to be there's there's a kind of um, I think humility is the common thread that I would put in there that is both on the site of the mental tarma, in the worship of the mental tarma, and in the uh, uh, um, uh, what was the other thing I was going to say? There's the third thing. I was going to do a three, but I forget. Anyway, sorry, totally lost my train of thought there. Anyway, in all of these things, there is a radical emphasis away from the worshiper and towards Iluvatar. Right, um, any one of those things. If they were to build something, they might. It might look nice, right? There's a chance. There's always a chance that the thing's going to look nice, and if it does, there's always the chance that it might draw attention to the builder instead of to Iluvatar, 
right? So instead, it is the holy mountain, right? It's the high place from which they can look out around and see uh, the whole island of Numenor and the sea around them, and 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 possibly even a glimmer of Tol Arisea. So um, they. Uh, that's what they look at, not anything constructed by hands. They don't speak. Because if you make a speech, there's always a chance you might speak well, or poorly. Um, they don't sing, because if you did sing, maybe you might sing well. Um, some people might sing better than other people, and be conscious of that. Um, some people might, oh, I don't know, feel desirous of uh, 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 exaggerating the glory of the part in the song assigned to them. I doubt that would happen, but it could, right? You, we, we, can, we can imagine that kind of thing happening. Um, instead, there's this... the the the, the sort of... all the negative statements. No, Not only no art, no architecture, no speech, no song, no liturgy, nothing. Um... Uh, other than the silent and reverent presence of the people and the few words spoken by the king on these three occasions, and that's the worship of Iluvatar. Now, note, though it is open year-round, right, and people do go up there all the time, they just don't talk. Um, so, anyway, this that's what seems to me to be the... Um, the the trend of what we get in the description of the worship there. Um, but now the eagles. Uh, several people are... Com- I asked about the eagles, and several people are commenting on them. Uh, Don says, are the eagles witnessing for Manway or of him? Uh, that is to say, uh, are they there to witness what the Numenorians do on Man- you know, and report back to Manway, or are they witnesses of him in the sense of being proof of him, as Don asks? Um this place seems much more tied to Manway uh, than should be. Maybe. Um, you know, Manway is certainly involved. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Sarah King says, Fanor would not be happy with this religion. Uh, yeah, maybe not. Um, neither would Melkor, certainly. Um Tom asks a sensible question. At once three eagles would appear and alight. From where? Sounds almost miraculous, and not like they were just circling high above and descended. I agree, Tom. There's something uh, a little more striking about the way that that's phrased. Um, At once three eagles would appear and alight. Um, Yeah, yeah, I agree. Maybe they move really, really fast. But, um... Uh, but, uh... But yeah, I, 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 that does seem there is at least an air of uh, of sort of mystery or miracle about it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, interesting. Kevin suggests. Kevin Keating suggests the sparseness may also be due to their ignorance. They don't know what to say or what to build because they don't have instruction as to what to do. Yeah, they're. In this way, their um, their worship is is well. It's very simple, right? I mean, they only do three things, right? Uh, they do prayer for the coming year, so they do petition, please bless us in the coming year, bless, guide, whatever they ask for for the coming year, praise in the middle, and thanksgiving at the end. 
Um, the, the distinction, by the way, between those two, my understanding, would be that praise of him is to praise him for who he is, uh, to praise him in himself, and then the thanksgiving is thanksgiving for the blessings he has he has given to correspond with their their petitionary prayers for what um, they were uh, what they asked for at the beginning of the year. Um, so yeah, I, I, that's very simple, right? And so in, in some ways, this does seem like an almost well, well, no, not not almost like a naive response. They don't know that much. And they go very minimalist here in their observations, and I think that that's really kind of interesting. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Bree Ma is pointing out that the eagles seem protective of the mental trauma, and I agree. There is, um, there is a. A dual feature of the eagles, which is, that is, on the one hand, they are witnesses, you know, again, we come back to that question, um, uh, you know, uh, Don, that you were asking before about, you know, in what sense witnesses, um, in which they are the representatives of the Valar, so we could look at it that way, right? We could say, you know, Manway is sending his representatives, so through the eagles, the eagles are sort of show the Valar themselves also participating, in some sense, in the worship of the Numenorians, worshiping along with them, right? Um, we could look at it that way. But of course, there's also uh, the creepier sense in which uh, they are um, watching upon the holy mountain and upon all the land. Um, you know, who needs spy drones when you have eagles? Um, you know, that this is like Big Brother is watching them at all times and they'd best not screw this up. Now, I'm not saying that it necessarily has. Um, you know, that kind of a, you know, negative impact all the way along, but, um, uh, but, but there is, um, especially the way in which the eagles are so aloof from them, um, that is, the eagles, it is not, if, the, if you know, Manway has sent the eagles, but the purpose of the eagles is not to commune with the Numenorians, um, Manway presumably could stay in touch with the, with the Numenorians if he wants to, um, but there's this, um, there's this uh, overseeing of them without connection to them. And that is interesting, I think. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Interesting. Roy is inclined to take a more, um, a more sort of symbolic reading of the eagles. The eagles are associated with saving and grace. That is, you know, in their eucatastrophic, uh, the repeated eucatastrophic interventions over the course of, of uh, Middle Earth history. Maybe there is a sense in which being on the mountain is redeeming of people's souls. Are we, to th- you know, is there a sense in which the ascension to the mental tarma? Is you know like a continuously <laughs> unfolding uh, catastrophe. It's an it's an interesting way to think about it. Um, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, Ethan says, no more mundane acts of worship are described to have happened in their daily routine. Does this mean that they worshipped only during those three times a year? We have no idea. I mean, we have so little out of Numenor. I mean, we've read for today everything, pretty much everything that we have about Numenor and its culture and everything. And there we don't get anything like the kind of detail, you know, where we get, like, a detailed description of a day in the life of the average Numenorean. I mean, we don't really know. Um, Timothy has a, a, a another suggestion, and Tim, I think you're very right to bring this up. Um, Timothy says the eagles are a sign of blessing. They are witnesses to Manway in that sense. That is, um, that they are, you know, like they, they are Manway's witness. They are there to testify, to be a, an, an outward sign of the blessing of Manway upon them as they worship there. Um, Timothy, that seems to me to be... Um, I think that seems to me to be at, at least one very important sense in which we, you know, they would why they would be called the witnesses of Manway in the first place. I think that that sense of the word witness seems to me to fit um, very well there. Um, yeah. Anyway, um, I don't want to spend forever on this, but I, I, I couldn't forbear to uh, to spend a little bit of time on the description of the worship of the mental tarma, because as I say, it's uh, um, it's hard to talk about because it's a solitary data point, but it's interesting to talk about because it's a solitary data point. So I didn't want to skip it um, entirely. Um, yeah, Sharon, of course, Sharon Powell as, uh, mentions Faramir's at least semi-religious practice, um, you know, the, uh, the the standing before meal that we see happening there um, uh, in Henethanun. And, um, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, Sharon, I was thinking of that, too. Of course, we don't have clear evidence that there was any such observance in Numenor. Um, the way that Faramir explains it is obviously a post-Numenorian um, uh, uh, thing. But, but yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it, can we, though, take that as clear enough evidence to say that there certainly was something like that back in Numenor? I don't think we can be so confident about it, but um, but it's, it is certainly suggestive that that kind of thing did still exist in a post-Numenorian culture. Um, yeah, good. A- Anthony was just recalling exactly the same thing. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, okay. I want to move on to Aldarion and Arendis. Um, you know, this is... Uh, I think certainly the sort of the biggest and meatiest of the Numenorean things. The first thing that I want to um, point to here is the context. Um, to go back to our, our handy graphic here from Matt, um, again, here we have the fifth and sixth uh, rulers. Uh, Tar Menelder and Tar Alderion um, are right here, so we're still quite near the beginning of Numenor. Um, and we're a long ways, we're several generations away from the shadow falling upon Numenor, as, as we're going to see. So we're not seeing we're not seeing uh, um, Numenor in decline, right? But nor are we exactly seeing Numenor in its innocence, either. I think, in its context, what I am tempted to call this moment, and, and really this particular moment, you know, the moment of the abdication of Tar Meneldur, um, seems to me something that we could point to as the turning of the tide in Numenor. Um, it's still high tide in Numenor, but the tide has turned. And now, uh, 
you know, uh, the, the, the each wave is going to reach a little bit less far up. That we're still a long ways from the shadow, right? Um, you know, it's going to be it's going to be a long time before the before the mucky tide pools and the seaweed and 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 flotsam and jetsam is revealed. But nevertheless, the tide is beginning to go out. I think that you know, Kate says, "Is this the shadow of a shadow?" Um, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, kind of in a sense. I, I, I don't want to be so definite as that because it's not like evil has come to the island of Numenor, but that we can see you know, the seedbed from which the shadow is going to grow. I think that this is one of the things that this story is really about. It's the story of choices. It's the sto- it's a story about, you know, dilemmas, about, you know, the, it's peace but the beginnings of discontent. Um, anyway, one thing I should, I should be... Um, uh, one thing I should confess... Right, yeah, the foreshadow of the shadow says Chuck. Yeah, Chuck. I think that's a good way to say it. Um, uh, one thing that I'm going to uh, admit from the beginning, um, uh, so that I just, I want to be upfront about this fact, I do not plan to talk in very much detail, in particular about the relationship between Aldarion and Arendis. It's not because I don't find it interesting or evocative, I do. Um, in fact, I find it quite painful. Um, you know, I find the scene of Eldarion's return to, uh, you know, when, after his final voyage out while they're married and when he comes back and finds her with Ankalame out in the country, I find that sequence particularly gut-wrenching. Um, but um, but I'm not going to I'm not going to dwell uh, on this. Um, and the main reason I want I'm, I want to not dwell on that um, is that I want to focus on the overall big picture because the question remains. Um, and you know, Timothy, you were asking me this before class. You know, one question which is really natural to ask about the story of Haldarian and Arendis is why, why, for crying out loud. Um, we get one story, one story of Numenor, and that one story is the story of a marriage of the king's heir that didn't quite work out. Um, seriously, like the the story of an unhappy marriage is the, is the one story that we get about Numenor. Why, in heaven's name, did Tolkien choose that as the subject of his only uh, Numenorian story? Um, and uh, I think it is a part of a bigger picture, and I think that there are ways in which um, the story of Aldarion and, and Arendis maps not in a you know in an allegorical or purely symbolic way, um, but I think that it really evokes the circumstances of Numenor, and as I said, helps us to see. Um, where the Numenorians came from. You know, one passage that kept coming back to me when I was reading um, this story this time was uh, that snippet from Appendix A, uh, the description of the death of Aragorn, when Arwen says to him, um, you know, uh, as wicked... You know, she's talking about the Numenorians and how she finally understands them and their fall. And she said, you know, as wicked fools, I scorned them. I scorned them. 
Um, you know, that's that was the attitude I used to have, but now, but now I now I understand. Now I pity them. Um, that was the the passage I kept coming back to in my head as I was reading this. That I think, if we might have been inclined to scorn the Numenorians as wicked fools. This story serves, I think, to help us understand a little bit how we get there. Again, we're not at the shadow yet, right? This is not the moment the shadow enters Numenor, or anything so dramatic as that. It's a, it's a much more fascinating choice of time frame. It's back in the time of the bliss of Numenor, and yet helps us to see not how this shadow grows, but how the shadow is going to be able to grow. Um, anyway, so I, 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 that's what really struck me about the story this time, and so that's the larger context that I want to focus on uh, when we talk about this. And I hope if if you really, really want to talk about uh, you know the, the the particular marital problems of Aldarian Arendis, and if you really, especially want to have arguments about who is more to blame in their relationship not working out, you know, between him and her. Um, uh, uh, we, I, I, I might be able to be cornered into doing something like that, though the latter certainly uh, is not something I'm real excited about. But, you know, if you compel me, we could maybe do that in a Q&A session. But I really want to make sure that we don't lose the bigger picture. Um, so, anyway... Um, uh, Timothy asks, is, is this really the story of the first hint of dissatisfaction with life confined in Numenor? No, 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 no. No, I'm not, I'm not asserting anything quite so bold as that. That, uh, you know, before this moment, there was never a stirring of any kind of problems of any kind in Numenor. No. But rather, by giving us this story, by giving, uh, you know, again, looking, you know, here, by giving us a story up here, if we take, loosely speaking, you know, from here to here, chronologically, as the time in which, um, you know, the bliss of Numenor was still more or less intact, and then the shadow begins to grow and then darkens as we go through here. This is still in the middle of the bliss period, right? Um, but it helps us to see where what the shadow is going to take hold of. Um, and it is, you know, Scott was just saying, it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a very morally complex story. I think it's a very morally complex story. In fact, I think I would almost go so far, Scott, as to say it's a story about moral complexity, in a sense. I think that moral complexity is one of its, um, one of its real points of interest. Uh, <laughs> Kate, uh, Kate Neville says one of the main points of this story, or rather one of the main lessons from this story. Um, yeah, she said two lessons. Lesson one, the Adine should always marry up. Yes, it's true. You know, I've joked before about uh, Tolkien, Tolkienian men always marrying up, and, uh, and, and often people will flock with counterexamples to that. Um, I still hold there are very, very few cases of men marrying down and it's working out well uh, in Tolkien. There are lots of unhappy or tragic relationships uh, which involve men marrying down, but the good ones are almost always with the men marrying up. Uh, and, uh, yes, Arthur Faramir and Eowyn is one is the only example I can think of of a really good marriage that was that was mar- that was a man marrying down. Um, but but even there, you know, arguably he's not. I mean, it depends on how you look at that. Politically speaking, he's a steward, and and she's uh, you know she's the sister of a king. 
you know, there's some there's some ambiguity. I think even there, but but I, I think you know, uh, yes, yes, the high man, middle man thing. I know Arthur. I, I know, uh, but I, I'm, I'm I'm totally willing to grant Faramir uh, and Eowyn as an exception, um, but it's one of the rare exceptions. Anyway. Kate's lesson two. Daughters, listen to your mother when she gives you advice about your future husband. Uh, here, here, Kate. I found Arendis's mother uh, to be one of the only entirely... Uh, she's one of the only characters this entire story I didn't have any problems with. One of the only entirely sympathetic characters in this entire story, I found. Um, <laughs> but anyway, and and as usual, nobody listens to exactly Arthur. I was thinking of Melian, too. As usual, nobody listens to her. You can always tell when somebody is really wise because people are guaranteed to ignore her. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, okay. So, uh, where I want to... Uh, 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 sort of start there, is thinking about Aldarian's sea longing. Now, sea longing, in general, is a subject of persistent interest in Tolkien's stories. Um, we see this as a major feature. Of course, we've been forcibly introduced to it in the Tuor story at the, be- at the beginning of this very collection. Um, so let's sort of take Tuor as a uh, somewhat arbitrary, but not entirely arbitrary, um, especially as he's alluded to in this story. Uh, yeah, I think that there are two ways in which that's not arbitrary. One is that these the story of Aldarion and Arendis and the story of Tuor and his coming to Gondolin, you know, the the, the, the abortive beginning of the of the of the big Tuor story, um, were were written around the same time range uh, in Tolkien's life, that is, you know, the two of them are not separated by too much. But also um, there's the reference to Tuor. Remember, Aldarion compares himself to Tuor, um, so that's that's clearly um, that's clearly kind of in their minds. Um, now, um, the sea longing, though, compare Aldarion's sea longing with Tuor's sea longing, the sea longing that is inspired within him by the Ulumuri, by the horns of 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 Olmo when they meet. What do you make of this? Here's one obvious difference, and I'll just sort of throw this out there. Um, Aldarian sea longing is the only instance I can think of, in all of Tolkien's stories, of somebody whose sea longing points east instead of west. That might seem like a really trivial difference, but I don't think so. Good, Ethan was just sorry. Thank you, Ethan, for justifying me. Uh, Ethan, while I was saying that, was typing two words westward and Aldarian is eastward. Yes, and I think that you know the, the westward-oriented sea longing, um, especially, and, and this is I think more emphatically um, 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 indicated by the means by which it grows in Tour. Um, there's always something sort of spiritual associated with it. I mean, the West, capital W, is such a potent mythic concept in Tolkien's works. You know, when one is longing for the sea, there seems always to be at least a little part, sometimes it's a big part, but always at least a little part of a longing for what's beyond the sea. You know, that uh, that a longing for the sea, that the sea in some ways speaks of, you know, the, the voice of the sea is like an echo of the music. Uh, the... Um, 
the desire for the sea uh, is is you know always at least a shadow or an echo of the desire for um, you know for the undying lands for the Valar and for the West. Not with Aldarion. Now, that would be bad, right? I mean, if Aldarion is looking west and longing to break the ban, that would be very bad of him. Um, eastward longing is appropriate. It's the only appropriate kind of sea longing for a Numenorean, so it's a different situation. Um, but it's, um, but I think the effect of that, Aldarion when longing for the sea, is facing east and has his back to the west. What do we make of that, exactly? Um, yeah, Kate says, Aldarion is a bit like Galadriel, who wished for lands of her own to order as she pleased. Yeah, Kate, I was thinking of that a lot, um, rereading the Aldarion story this time. Um, uh, yeah, Gord uh, is pointing out, uh, you know, again, the, the east is the only permissible way to go, so Aldarion's longing is for the adventure. Um, yes, the adventure that has been permitted to them, right? So it's still an ordinate desire, um, uh, to use Augustinian terms. Uh, that is to say, it's a, it's not a desire that's wrong, that's intrinsically wrong. It's not an immoral desire, his desire to travel and to adventure and to go east. If it were a westward, that would be, in this way, an immoral desire. It would be a breaking of the ban, right? It would be a desire to do something which is forbidden to him. That would be an inordinate desire. But So it's okay, it's permissible for him to desire for the east, but but because it's an eastward desire, it does seem to have a different quality. Kate, it does seem to me more... Uh, that that the traveling from eastward to westward, we only get a couple of eastward to westward trips, right? The Noldor returning to Middle-earth, um, the Numenorians going back to Middle-earth, and then finally the exiles of Numenor fleeing the downfall uh, and returning in exile to Middle-earth, and all three of those are, I think, morally ambiguous um, in, 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 in certain ways. Um, Timothy says, it's, uh, is it so much a sea longing or more a longing for Middle-earth to explore it? Yes and no, Tim. I mean, I, 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 I agree. He does long for Middle-earth, and Middle-earth does seem to be what's drawing him. But it's the sea, too. I mean, it's not... Uh, it's it's not just a question like the the sea is not only a means for him like it's you know he's got to have ships because they're the only way he can get to middle earth um and that middle earth is really his fix that at least is not how he comprehends it that's not how he understands it um yeah Bree says his longing for the sea uh, seems to him to be an escape from responsibility um, and uh, the responsibility of family. Yeah, we do see that with Aldarion. Um, and uh, I think that that's... Um, that, does, that seems to me to be a kind of warning flag. It's hard to look at Aldarion's eastward-oriented, Middle-earth-focused desire to travel and adventure as being an unqualified good thing. Um... Uh, anyway, let's 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 look at some passages here. Here's his very brief exchange with his father when he returns from his first ever voyage. What did you see, Anya, in your far journeys that now lives most in memory? But Aldarion, looking east towards the night, was silent. 
At last he answered, but softly, as one that speaks to himself, The fair people of the elves, the green shores, the mountains wreathed in cloud, the regions of mist and shadow beyond guess, I do not know. He ceased, and Minelder knew that he had not spoken his full mind, for Aldarion had become enamoured of the great sea, and of a ship riding there alone without sight of land, borne by the winds with foam at its throat to coasts and havens unguessed, and that love and desire never left him until his life's end. He doesn't know what it is. Um, notice in his answer, um, he said, what did you see in your far journey that now lives most in memory? He doesn't talk about the sea, right? He talks about Middle-earth. That would seem to support the fact that for him it's really all about Middle-earth and not about the sea. But that notice he's become enamored of the great sea and of a ship riding there alone without sight of land. That state itself is something that he desires, is something that he wants. I love his description of how the ground bruises his feet, right? He can't take it anymore, this walking on solid ground. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Bree says he wants to be master of his own fate, riding there alone without sight of land. Um, yeah, that is one of the factors that it mentions that he really appreciates about it. Um, he is clearly taken with the wonders of Middle-earth, um, but at the same time it is simply the desire to be riding alone without sight of land, borne by the winds with foam at its throat to coasts and havens unguessed. Um, the journey itself and not the destination is clearly important to him, uh, and a major part of it. Um, is, does that, is, is that a bad thing? Are we supposed to understand that? I don't think we're supposed to understand that that's a bad thing in itself. Um, but it is tangled in him with some kind of questionable things. Jumping ahead in the story a bit. Um, look at, uh, we, uh, a little bit of the wisdom of Nuneth, um, uh, Arendus's mom. Yet to many besides Arendus, it seemed that he had little love for trees in themselves, caring for them rather as timber that would serve his designs. Not far otherwise was it with the sea, for as Nuneth had said to Arendus long before, ships he may love, my daughter, for those are made by men's minds and hands, but I think that it is not the winds or the great waters that so burn his heart, nor yet the sight of strange lands, but some heat in his mind, or some dream that pursues him. So here, see, Nuneth is disagreeing with both of the things we were suggesting. Is it the sea or is it Middle-earth? She says neither, actually. Um, it's not either one of those things. It's some heat in his mind or some dream that pursues him. And it may be that she struck near the truth. Of course she struck near the truth. Uh, she always strikes near the truth. For Alderion was a man long-sighted, and he looked forward to days when the people he would when the people would need more room and greater wealth. And whether he himself knew this clearly or no, he dreamed of the glory of Numenor and the power of its kings, and he sought for footholds whence they could step to wider dominion. So it was that ere long he turned again from forestry to the building of ships, and a vision came to him of a mighty vessel like a castle with tall masts and great sails like clouds, bearing men and stores enough for a town.
Okay. What do we get here? Hmm? What do you notice? Uh, Arthur thinks he's channeling Saruman here. Um, cutting down trees in the name of Dominion. To some extent, you know, he always says, hey, I'm a great defender of the forests, right? I'm the best friend of the forests that there is, right? I'm going to plant more trees than anybody plants trees. I'm going to, you know, there are going to be more forests in Numenor when I die than there were when I was born. So I'm, I'm all about the trees, man. I'm, I'm, hey, you know, it's like, I, hey, Arendis, you like trees? I like trees, right? We've got that in common. And she says, no, no, we don't have that in common. Um, that he cares for trees rather as timber that would serve his designs. Remember that horrible faux pas that he commits at his wedding ceremony? When the elves come from Eresia and they bring him this tree from Tol Eresia? And his, his, like, what seems at the time like a boorish comment? You know, he's like, oh, I bet the lumber of that sucker is pretty awesome, right? And they're like, um, we wouldn't know. We've never hewn this tree. Uh, and it's like he's made this horrible gaffe, it seems, or at least sort of revealed the, how different his mind is from theirs. Um, they don't comment on it, right? We don't get an extended exchange there. Um, but from the way that comes out, you kind of have to um, have to uh, to think that the elves were a little shocked by his comment um, about their tree. Um, but then, what about Numenor itself? Um, uh, Scott is joking about Al- uh, Conquistador Alderian. Not exactly. It's not exactly like that. He's not just an imperialist. But he's not exactly not an imperialist either. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Bree is wanting to point to things, you know, the references to glory and power and wider dominion and even the mighty vessel like a castle as the foreshadowing of wanting power. Um, if Aldarion is not yet our Pharazon, you know, if he's not yet someone who is seeking to dominate others and enslave others uh, to his will, um, he's not like that, but he's not totally unlike them either. Um, Yeah, yeah, I mean, there's... um, There is, I mean, Arthur points to his greed there. I, I think that seems a fair observation. Um, good. Kate says he's also a bit like Turin wanting Nargathron to expand its reach. And I would agree, Kate, there's the same ambiguity that we get in the Unfinished Tales Turin, um, with his speech, especially, um, to the council there at Nargathrond, um, that it's not entirely a bad or foolish thing. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, Tom Hillman points out and says, uh, but, uh, but if it is as Nuneth says, his visions are of a time generations in the future. Yes, that he is laying the foundation for things to come. That It's not his personal power that he's thinking of. But Tom, of course, we know the irony of that, right? Nuneth doesn't know it. Um, she doesn't realize that 
um, that dream that the, that if he is seeing a distant future, we know the di- we know what the distant future of Numenor is going to be like, right? It's not going to be pretty. Um, if he is paving the way to the future, the future that he's paving the way to is a bad future. Now, um, it's not that his desires are bad. It's not even that his you know purposes are bad, but when the Numenorians get to where he's imagining they're someday going to be, they'll be doing bad things when they're there. Um, and Don says he's pretty short-sighted for a man long-sighted. Uh, in some things, yeah, yeah, in some things. Um, here's the exchange between Aldarian and Arendus about... Um, um, this is when they start they start talking about the forests and Uinin versus Orome. Uh, he's referring to Numenor here. I love it indeed, he answered, though I think that you doubt it. For I think also of what it may be in time to come, and the hope and splendor of its people. And I believe that a gift should not lie idle in, the ho- in hoard. But Arendus denied his words, saying, Such gifts as come from the Valar, and through them from the One, are to be loved for themselves now, and in all nows. They are not given for barter, for more, or for better. The Edain remain mortal men, Aldarion, great though they be. And we cannot dwell in the time that is to come, lest we lose our now for a phantom of our own design." Then taking suddenly the jewel from her throat, she asked him, Would you have me trade this to buy me other goods that I desire? No, said he, but you do not lock it in hoard. Yet I think you set it too high, for it is dimmed by the light of your eyes. Then he kissed her on the eyes, and in that moment she put aside fear and accepted him, and their troth was plighted on the steep path of the Minaltarma. (laughs) <laughs> Sarah thinks that was pretty smooth, right? That was that was that was almost Faramir-like smoothness, right there. I gotta say, um, uh, Nancy says, "Way to sidestep her point, Aldarian." Yeah, really, he does kind of dodge it there. Now he does he returns to the one point, right? Now, in a, in one sense, Nancy's not utterly sidestepping, right? Um, that he is he's returning to the point which she also has not missed, but stepped aside from herself, right? He says it shouldn't lie idle and hoard, and she says, yeah, but you shouldn't barter it, you shouldn't sell it, and he says that's not what I said, right? Um, I said it shouldn't lie idle in hoard. Um, now, it's easy to think of this, again, to get caught up in the uh, if not imperialistic then kind of almost proto-imperialistic uh, uh, view that Aldarian has. Um, Arendus is accusing him of giving up his now for the future, right? We are supposed to enjoy the gift we've received now, not just um, barter our present, you know, the gift that we have in the present for something better in the future. Aldarian says, okay, I agree, but we shouldn't be to simply say, hey, this is, a, you know, Numenor is awesome now. Let's just enjoy Numenor today, shall we? Let's, let's just go for a walk. Um, and not think about the future is not, in fact, treasuring the gift, is not, in fact, even respecting the gift. 
Um, Brandon says, I thought they were supposed to be silent at the mental tarma. Oh, that they had been silent at the mental tarma. No, they're not up there yet. They have to be silent on the pinnacle of the mental tarma. They're still on the path coming down. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Tom, coming back to that, uh, or rather coming to that in a minute. Um, yeah. Roy says he's almost saying that you set Arrow in the Valar too high. I'm not sure I agree there, Roy. I don't think he's... I don't think he's disagreeing with that. Um, one way that I think we can sort of boil down their two viewpoints here is she's saying we need to focus on the place where we have been put by the Valar and by Iluvatar um, and enjoying the gift that they have given us. And him saying, yes, we should. And part of that is to be a good steward of that gift, right? Um, when Feanor locked the Silmarils away in his vault at Formanos, that was ba- he was denying the sight of the Silmarils to everybody else. That was wrong. And he was motivated to that by wrong and selfish motivations. Aldarion is saying, Numenor were the jewels, right? And we're locked away. We should be sharing what we have. We should be sharing the light of who we are. We should be, we should be not just expanding in, this, in like an acquisitional sense, but shouldn't we shouldn't Numenor itself be a blessing? Shouldn't it be husbanded to use a, a, an embarrassing word for Aldarion here? Um, that is, shouldn't it not just be enjoyed but shouldn't it be uh, be husbanded against future sh- should, shouldn't it be used as well? Um, as well as enjoyed? Um, isn't that you know, not only not disrespectful, but in some ways more respectful. Uh, I, anyway, um, Timothy says she is static, he is dynamic. In in one sense, yes. Um, yeah, Scott says, but that sounds exactly like those who use who used to argue the manifest destiny and imperialism. Yes, yes, exactly. It is. It is. Um, that, I think, is what we see again and again and again throughout this story. There is... I don't think there's a single... Th- at least in my opinion, there's not a single time in this story that we get a debate between two people where one person is obviously wrong and the other person is obviously right. Um, usually, they're both wrong <laughs> in this story. But um, uh, but anyway, you can see both of their arguments. It's almost like a kind of, a kind of cautionary tale. Um... Arendus is right. That's a really good argument. Aldarion is right about uh, things lying idle and hoard. That's also true. Um, both of them have um, have uh, have drawbacks. Both of them, if taken too far, or if taken in the wrong way, or if done in the wrong spirit, can lead downhill. Um, you know, um, Arendus's view can lead you to the final days of Gondolin, you know, and Turgon shutting his gates to to everybody and not caring and saying, hey, let's enjoy Gondolin. Um, and even if Almo tells us to leave, we don't care. Um, uh, but at the same time, uh, you know, Eldarian's viewpoint couldn't easily become very, very Arpharazon, even very Sauron-like. Um, so, you know, it's not really, it's not really simple. Um, Kate says, like ensign entwives, in some ways, like ensign entwives. I find myself a little resistant to the parallel. Kate, I was thinking about that. I, I find myself a little resistant to that parallel. Um, 
because when I try to map it out, certainly onto Eldarion and Arendus, it really doesn't work. Mostly because I find the Ents very unlike um, Eldarion in so many ways. But in the sense of showing us... Yeah, as Kate says, in the sense that they both have good points. Yes, that both of them are valid and even complementary valid ways of looking at things. Uh, And the only way the only way uh, that they should be related to each other well is through marriage, right? To have them both. To join them together. Um, Which is why the marital disharmony between Arendus and Aldarion is in this way so tragic. Um, and that, I think, is one of the functions of the of the story of their relationship, is that, again, one of the ways in which I think the story of their relationship, though it might seem like a, a, a sort of surprisingly small-scale and soap opera-ish thing uh, to, to, to focus on in the only story of Numenor that we get, I think actually functions very well um, in, uh, in, in sort of conveying to us what not only what the culture was like, but what the sort of, what their, their, their dangers are. Um, another thing is we see shadows. Again, those, um, uh, Chuck, was it you were talking about the foreshadowing of the shadow? I think there are several places in the story we can see that. Um, for instance, in that time, Aldarion became estranged from his father and ceased to speak openly of his designs and desires. But Almarion the queen still uh, supported her son in all that he did, and Minelder perforce let matters go as they must. For the venturers grew in numbers and in the esteem of men, and they called them Uwen, and they called them Uenindili, the lovers of Uenin and their captain became the less easy to rebuke or restrain. The ships of the Numenorians became ever larger and of greater draft in those days, until they could make far voyages, carrying many men in great cargoes, and Aldarion was often long gone from Numenor. Tarman Elder ever opposed his son, and he set a curb on the felling of trees in Numenor for the building of vessels. And it came therefore into Aldarion's mind that he would find timber in Middle-earth, and seek there for a haven uh, for the repair of his ships." In his voyages down the coast, he looked with wonder on the great forests, at the mouth of the river that that, that the Numenorians called Gwathir, River of Shadow. He he established Vinyalande, the New Haven. Um, uh, By the way, I think that I I really... uh, I would recommend that passage to the state of Connecticut. Vinyalande is a much more beautiful name of a town. I think that Yale would be a much uh, nicer university if it were if it were located in Vinyalonde than if it were located in New Haven. But anyway, um, one of the things that we can see here that one of the, mo- the, the ways in which this is uh, functions for me anyway uh, very strongly is that kind of a foreshadowing of the shadow is the way that this depicts the way that this anticipates the kind of factionalism that we will see in uh, the society of Numenor later on the division you know the cultural division between the venturers and not all of the rest of the people but you know the venturers and the rest of the people is kind of like it it it, it smacks a little bit of the king's men. Um, you know, and the division between the king's men and the faithful. Um, and, you know, we're still miles away from that, right? The the venturers are not, you know, when Aldarion 
takes the scepter, and the venturers are now in. Tr- we're not going to have the you know the non-venturers uh, you know persecuted and dragged out for human sacrifice or anything like that. Um, but uh, but again, that 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 tendency towards factionalism and how factionalism rises and the way in which um, you know the, this this sort of division that arises between again thinking back to the you know that end and end wife like situation Eldarion and Meneldor both have really valid concerns both have um, both have really good things in mind instead of working together they're pulling apart and that's where I think you know we, we see that factionalism working again which is sort of not showing us how the shadow came to be but rather showing us um, the beginnings, uh, the, the sort of, this, as I said at the beginning, uh, the seedbed from which that can grow. Um, those much more negative things um, could grow later on. Um, looking at another one of those conversations, which I find so easy to see both sides of. So here's the debate between Aldarion and Meneldor. Seven years passed before Aldarion came back, bringing with him ore of silver and gold, and he spoke with his father of his voyage and his deeds. But Meneldor said, Rather would I have had you beside me than any news or gifts from the dark lands. This is the part of merchants and explorers, not of the king's heir. What need have we of more silver and gold, unless to use in pride where other things would serve as well? The need of the king's house is for a man who knows and loves this land and people, which he will rule. Do I not study men all my days? said Aldarion. I can lead and govern them as I will. Say rather some men of like mind with yourself, answered the king. There are also women in Numenor, scarce fewer than men. Um, by the way, this, that, that remark... In Tolkien's dialogue, he rarely does snippy. Rarely, sometimes, but rarely do you see somebody get actually snippy, have a sort of a sarcastic bite to their words. Um, This is one example, I think. Uh, Scarce fewer than men, he says. Uh, You might not have noticed, but there are women around. Uh, Let me draw your attention to this fact. Uh, And, save your mother, whom indeed you can lead as you will, what do you know of them? Yet one day you must take a wife. One day, said Alderian, but not before I must, and later, if any, try to thrust me towards marriage. Other things I have to do more urgent to me, for my mind is bent on them. Cold is the life of a mariner's wife, and the mariner who is single of purpose and not tied to the shore goes further, and learns better how to deal with the sea. Further, but not to more profit, said Meneldor. And you do not deal with the sea, Alderian, my son. Do you forget that the Adine dwell here under the grace of the lords of the west, that Uinin is kind to us, and Ose is restrained? Our ships are guarded, and other hands guide them than ours. What do you see here? Again, I think we can see both sides. Now, I say we can see both sides. Um, I think that there's no question that, especially at this point in the story, um, uh, Aldarion kind of comes off worse. Oh, sorry, I, I, I've, uh, let me continue on the end of the passage here. So be not overproud, or the grace may wane, and do not presume that it will extend to those who risk themselves without need upon the rocks of strange shores, or in the lands of men of darkness. To what purpose, then, is the gracing of our ships, said Aldarion, if they are to sail to no shores, and may seek nothing not seen before? Um, as I was saying, 
Um, I think that we can see, I, I, we, we can see both sides of this. I do think Aldarion comes off looking worse. Not that his arguments are necessarily inferior, not that his point of view uh, is obviously more questionable than the point of view of Meneldor uh, or of Arendis, his two primary antagonists in these conversations, um, but rather that he comes off as less sympathetic. His rebelliousness against his father and his king puts him on kind of shaky ground. The more manifest pride, the way in which his desires are informed by being his own boss, that whole attitude of the more anybody tries to tell me what to do, the more I dig in my heels no matter how irrational it is, and I really like being on shipboard because at least when I'm on a ship, by golly, I'm in charge, and nobody can tell me what to do. Um, Those things make it hard. Uh, to be on Eldarion's side, and I think help to make Menelder's comments here really um, sink in. But, but we never sink in for us. I mean, not 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 to Eldarion. Um, but uh, but again, I don't think that narrative ever really allows us to be anti Eldarion. If we're, I mean, not that we can't dislike him. Um, I kind of dislike him, but um, but rather that we. That that we you know think that he's entirely mistaken or entirely corrupt uh, in his point of view. His final argument, uh, the one I almost skipped uh, here on my second slide, is um, I think particularly telling. Don't forget that our ships are graced by the Valar, and why are they graced, Saldarian, if not uh, to use them? Um, is that not you know spitting on the gift of the uh, uh, of the Valar? Um, yeah, Kate says, grown-ups just can't understand what he's thinking and feeling. Yeah, you get that sense about Aldarion a lot, right? Uh, that there's something still quite adolescent about him, as Kate says, I agree. Um, yeah, yeah, now Jeff says, you know, he's the ignorant child getting away from his true destiny to be king. Again, that's Menelder's argument, and that's a good argument. But what's his counter-argument? No, I'm getting less ignorant, actually. If I just stayed here in Numenor and didn't see the world and didn't have, you know, the the, the, the kind of experience... I, I am, in fact, learning stuff, which, believe it or not, is going to be of practical use when I am king. Things that it will be good for me to have known. Um, so, again, I... I um, although I do think Aldarion's actions and his position are a little bit hard to defend... Uh, you know, especially in this section of the story. Um, and he certainly is very proud. Nevertheless, I don't think we ever... The story really lets us swing around to be entirely contrary to him. Then, a bomb drops. A bomb drops on Mineldor, and I think on us, too. And the bomb, of course, uh, Tom, what you were referring to earlier, uh, is Gilgalad's letter. A new shadow arises in the east. It is no tyranny of evil men, as your son believes, but a servant of Morgoth is stirring, and evil things wake again. Each year it gains in strength, for most men are ripe to its purpose. Not far off is the day, I judge, when it will become too great for the Eldar unaided to withstand. Therefore, whenever I behold a tall ship of the kings of men, my heart is eased. And now I make bold to seek your help. If you have any strength of men to spare, lend it to me, I beg. Your son will report to you, if you will, all our reasons. But in fine, it is his counsel, and that is ever wise, that when assault comes, as it surely will, 
we should seek to hold the Westlands, where still the Eldar dwell, and men of your race, whose hearts are not yet darkened. At the least we must defend Eriador, about the long rivers west of the mountains, that we name Hithaiglir, our chief defense. But in that mountain wall there is a great gap southward, in the land of Kalanartham, and by that way inroad from the east must come. Already enmity creeps along the coast towards it. It could be defended, and assault hindered, did we hold some seat of power upon the nearer shore. So the Lord Alderian long has seen. At Vinyalonde, by the mouth of Guathlo, he has long labored to establish such a haven, secure against sea and land, but his mighty works have been in vain. He has great knowledge in such matters, for he has learned much of Cirdan, and he understands better than any the needs of your great ships. But he has never had men enough, whereas Cirdan has no rights or masons to spare. The king will know his own needs, but if he will listen with favor to the Lord Aldarion and support him as he may, then hope will be greater in the world. The memories of the First Age are dim, and all things in Middle-earth grow colder. Let not the ancient friendship of Eldar and Dunedain wane also. Wow! That's a bit of a different perspective on Alderian and what he's been doing, right? Um, and I think it's fascinating the way that the letter of Gilgoad serves as this pivot. Because um, I think it is a pivot. To that point in the story, the story has been rigidly Numenorean in its point of view. Um, that is, all of the sort of narrative sympathy... Uh, all of the the point of view of the narrative is from the perspective of Numenor. So when we've looked at Aldarion, when we, through the narrative, have seen Aldarion and what he's doing, we see it all, we're all standing on Numenor, and we hear about that he wants to leave, and where he wants to go, and some things about what he's trying to do, um, but we don't really hear that much. Why? Because we don't really care all that much. The story cares about Numenor, right? Um, what about the kingship? What about what about getting married? What about your wife? And these are all really important things. Um, and, you know, especially in that last passage that I just gave you, which, I, and I agree with Kate, that he sounds really adolescent there. Um, and his he seems to be just shirking. And, I mean, man, can't you settle down? Are you going to keep doing this your whole life? You know, can't you, um, you know, uh, uh, settle down and get a full-time job and, you know, give up all this stuff? And then all of a sudden, boom. Here's how things look from Middle-earth, right? Um, on the other side of the ocean, what do Aldarian's adventures look like? There's almost a sense, you remember how... Um, Menelder listens to Aldarion talking about his deeds, but he doesn't seem really very interested, right? Okay, yeah, oh, great. Oh, and you've brought gold. How nice. Um, uh, but now what about being king? What about getting to know your people at Numenor? What about getting married? What about begetting an heir? Come on, you know, let's think about these things. Let's, th- let's think about what's really important. Or even worse, that terrible scene of Aldarion returning uh, to Arendis the time before the fatal trip, his second-to-last trip during his non-estranged marital years, um, when uh, her love for him is is wounded, but not quite to the death. Um, and when he comes back and she says, tell me all about your trip. And he tells her everything, 
and she's deaf to it. She's not listening. She doesn't care at all. Um, and um, so he's he's been so uh, he's been saying these things. He's been talking about these things. But nobody has heard him, including us. We, the readers of this story, haven't heard him. We didn't know about this stuff happening, right? Um, because the story hasn't showed us that. I think the way in which we um, get... Um, uh, the way that we are manipulated, almost, uh, as the readers of this story, I think is fascinating. Um, and now here, all of a sudden, we get drawn back because of course and and I think it hits even more strongly um, because of who we are and because of our own histories that is to say the story of Aldarion and Arendus is not really written for people who haven't read the Lord of the Rings right uh, I mean I, 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 it seems likely that everybody coming to this story is already going to know that story so when we're hearing uh, uh you know, the letter from Gilgalad saying, uh, yeah, there's some evil power growing in the east. Uh, I think it might be a servant of Morgoth. This begins to look bad. Um, I, I have a f- kind of a feeling that things are going to go downhill. Um, uh, it resonates with us really strongly, right? So it's not just a shift in perspective, but it's a shift back to a familiar perspective. It's, you know, it's that, oh my goodness, wait a second, actually, what Aldarion is doing now looks totally different to me. It's not just imperialism. It's not just irresponsibility. Um, it's not just arrogance and pride. Um, uh, it's what he's doing is is worthwhile and important. And even just to hear the compliments that Gilgalad is bestowing on him, you know, uh, you know the things like, uh, uh, but in fine, it is his counsel and that is ever wise, right? Um, you know, the fact that Aldarion has been the one who is, uh, again, to go back to his uh, final words here, uh, you know, let not the ancient friendship of Eldar and Dunedain wane also. Um, If it hasn't waned, it's Aldarion's fault that it hasn't waned, right? Um, Is he turning away from the traditional ways of Numenor? No, you could say he's going back to the traditional ways of Numenor. Um, Yeah, yeah. um, Yeah, Alyssa says, Michael Drought would call that uh, the the epistemic regime. Tolkien is manipulating what the characters and the readers know and win. Yes, he's very good at that. Um, and I think that th- this is a really remarkable example um, of that. Ethan says, Aldarian is revealed to be more altruistic than we thought. Um, yes, yes, exactly. Um, Scott says... Do you not think that he didn't emphasize these matters enough? That he emphasized his own desires instead? No, that's just what we heard about. We get there if you go back, go back and read it again. You will find there are several times when he's trying to talk about Middle Earth, but we don't get it. We 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 never get his narrative. It's just passed over in a couple sentences of prose, and then he told Minelder all about what was going on in Middle Earth, and then I mean we even got that. Just going back a few slides here. Um. Uh, he spoke with his father of his voyage and his deeds. But Minelder said, Rather would I have had you beside me than any news or gifts from the dark lands. <sighs> Boring. I don't care what's going on in... Don't you realize? I don't care what's going on in Middle-earth. I care what's going on here in Numenor. And so, by golly, this is the Numenor story, so we're only going to tell you, you... The narrator is only going to tell us what is of interest to the Numenor audience. Right? Um... Yeah, but no, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing 
that if we were to get that full dialogue, you know, if we were to be, you know, a fly on the wall in that room, what we would have heard is Aldarian t- talking about Gilgalad and saying, you know, there, uh, let me, t- I'm, I'm, I'm trying, let me tell you about Vinyamar. Remember when he goes back? He's he's home for twenty years, and he goes back, and he comes back, and he's like, man, you know. Vinyalande is trashed. It got completely trashed in the 20 years that I was gone. I'm trying to build something and I think it's really important and it keeps getting wrecked and everyone's like who cares? Who cares about your stupid little haven over in Middle Earth? Right? You know, anyway I think um, uh, and Roy you're right. I think that we do see um, he doesn't care about men of darkness. Um uh, notice, um, uh, yeah, notice at the beginning of that, um, that passage there, um, yeah, um, no, sorry, that's not what I was thinking. Um, oh yeah, yeah. So it's, uh, you know, it's at the end of this passage. Yes. Um, so be not over proud, or the grace may wane, and do not presume that it will extend to those who risk themselves without need upon the rocks of strange shores or in the lands of men of darkness. Um, I agree, Roy. That's pretty revealing, right? Um, Meneldor is. I, 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 there's not. It's not just. It's not just sort of classism on his part. Uh, it is, but he he doesn't care. Right, um, as, as Roy says, but there is need. Yeah, in fact, we discover that um, yes, yes, there was in fact need. So, in other words, you see where we end up. We see you, you see where we end up here at the end of the story. Aldarion, we see the dangerous tendencies of Aldarion's desires, right? Of his eastward focused sea longing. We get the the imperialism and the you know. Uh, there are some of the things that he says, like in that conversation with, with Arendus that we were looking at earlier, where it's like, you know, there's like a knife blade between what you say and what our Farazon would say, even though their mind their you know mindsets are totally different, the rationale is almost exactly the same. You know, Scott, as you were saying, it's 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 exactly the kind of language that, you know, manifest destiny and like the conquistadors would have used. Different purposes, right? Your ends are different, but your means are similar, and that's a problem, right? There's some real danger there. Um, Aldarion's point of view opens them up to exactly the kind of, uh, you know, the the enslavement of the people of Middle-earth that's going to come later on. The foundations for that are laid by Aldarion here in his choices. However, at the same time, and very forcibly here at the end, we see... Menelder and Arendus are also wrong, um, and uh, and that their point of view is also really dangerous. Um, and uh, um, you know, so anyway, it's it's. So you know, in, in some ways, you, you can say that all the conversations between people, you can see both sides, but you could just as well say that you can see neither one of them. Um, the choice as Menelder describes it. Here's Menelder when confronted with this stuff that he's never, clearly, never really paid attention to before. When the Valar gave... Sorry, didn't get there yet. There we go. When the Valar gave to us the land of gift, they did not make us their vicegerents. We were given the kingdom of Numenor, not of the world. We're not in charge of the world. 
we're not, you know, the the global police, right? They are the lords. Here we were to put away hatred and war, for war was ended, and Morgoth thrust forth from Arda. So I deemed, and so was taught. Yet if the world grows but if the world grows again dark, the lords must know, and they have sent me no sign. Unless this be the sign. What then? Our fathers were rewarded for the aid they gave in the defeat of the great shadow. Shall their sons stand aloof if evil finds a new head? I am in too great doubt to rule, to prepare or to let be, to prepare for war, which is yet only guessed, train craftsmen and tillers in the midst of peace for blood spilling in battle, put iron in the hands of greedy captains who will love only conquest. See, he, he sees the conquistadors too, right? And count them and count the slain as their glory. Will they say to Eru, at least your enemies were amongst them? Or to fold hands, while friends die unjustly, let men live in blind peace until the ravisher is at the gate. What then will they do? Match naked hands against iron and die in vain? Or flee, leaving the cries of women behind them? Will they say to Eru, at least I spilled no blood? When either way may lead to evil, of what worth is choice? Let the Valar rule under Eru. I will resign the scepter to Alderion. Yet that also is a choice, for I know well which road he will take. Um, yeah, I think that Meneldor... Uh, I know that Meneldor might seem really weak. And I, 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 I can see, I, you know, I sort of gather that a lot of people have that reaction uh, to this story, that Meneldor, confronted with the crisis throws up his hands and says, I don't know, um, uh, I've got a great idea. How about I pass the buck? Um, I know that it kind of seems like... Um, uh, um, I know that that kind of seems like that's that's uh, what he does. But I don't think so. At least, I don't think that that's the force of what he's doing. He is... in this moment, recognizing the situation that we can see unfolding throughout this entire story. Perhaps there is no right choice. There is no... The world is not that simple, right? The human condition isn't that simple. There isn't a question of following the right path or falling into darkness. All paths lead to darkness, potentially, right? All paths are dangerous. There's, there's no. He, he sees both. Either way could lead to catastrophe, right? Um, if we don't prepare for war, if we do nothing when evil seems to be stirring again, will we say to Arrow at least we spilled no blood, right? Okay, we we failed. We you know we we at the least did no good. You know, we enjoyed our ease and our peace while we had it, and then it perished. Um, at the worst, we failed in our trust, right? We were given power. You know, we were given the capability to do something, and we just didn't. Um, we could have been stewards, but we weren't stewards. We might not be vicegerents, but at least we're, uh, uh, we, we maybe could have been stewards. Um, and he sees, no, no, that would be bad. That would be bad to do that. But 
it's dangerous to train craftsmen and tillers in the midst of peace for blood spilling and battle. You know what happens when you train people up for war to fight against the darkness? Well, at the very least, there's a decent chance that you'll end up loving the sword for its sharpness and the arrow for its swiftness and the warrior for his glory, right? I mean, that's like a minimum danger that faces you. Um, or you might become not the solution, but part of the problem, right? I, you know, our Farazan was awful prepared for war, right? He was he was ready to go. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, sometimes there is no good choice, Scott. That that I that's kind of my take home too. I, you know, I think that that's. Um, and at Ethan, I agree. This passage does seem almost uh, has an almost Shakespeare esque soliloquy feel. You know, the way we get Minelder on stage, sort of debating back and forth and speaking. I, I, that that uh, did uh, seem right to me. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Tom says, in doubt a man of worth will trust to his own wisdom. He does make a choice, right? It's, he, he doesn't refuse to choose. He does choose. Um, as, as he himself recognizes, to resign the scepter to Aldarion is also a choice. He is not simply choosing passivity. He's not just choosing. He's not simply passing the buck. He's made his choice by passing the scepter to Aldarion. Um, he combines his choice with an act of humility, right? I'm going to, to choose the path of these two dangerous paths. This seems like the one where that we really need to go down. But I can't take it. I can't tread that path. I, I don't have the qualifications. Um, and Aldarion's reaction to Meneldur's abdication... Uh, is to me the most glorious moment of Aldarion's character in this entire story. His response to his father's, his recognition and response um, to his father's humility uh, is, I think, one of his best, um, uh, one of his best um, uh, moments. Clearly, oh, a couple of you have asked. Vicegerent is in fact uh, the correct spelling. I remember I, for years, uh, was uh, under the same impression when I saw that word, vicegerent. I was like, clearly that that must be a misspelling, right? They mean regent, not gerent. No, gerent. It's a it's a very archaic word. Um, the to to be vicegerent means to be the one who is the appointed ruler, um, not like a steward, but like a replacement king, um, like, a, like, like a substitute king. Um, uh, yeah, the, the, the vicegerent is to the king not as a steward, you know, who helps to oversee things and might be like the official highest in command while the king is gone, but doesn't have the authority of the king. The vicegerent is to the king more like the substitute teacher is to your regular teacher, right? Um, it doesn't have a, she doesn't have a subordinate role, but during the, you know, on, on the day when the teacher is gone, the substitute teacher wields the full authority of the regular teacher, right? That, that's, that's more the, what a, what a vicegerent is. A viceroy, exactly. Uh, Brandon, that, that's another word for it. Um, 
but but anyway, it's it's a very uh, it is a very archaic word. Anyway, um, so what do we take from this story? Well, look where we began. First paragraph. Meneldur was the son of Tarelendil, the fourth king of Numenor. He was the king's third child, for he had two sisters, named Silmarian and Isilme. The elder of these was wedded to Elatan of Andunie, and their son was Velandil, lord of Andunie, from whom came long after the lines of the kings of Gondor and Arnor in Middle-earth. Now, I don't make too much of this. But there's a sense in which we can see... Notice what happened here. Nobody did anything wrong, right? It's not like Silmarion was, you know, it, it, it illegally or immorally bereft of her inheritance or anything like that. Um, but we know that after Alderion, um, the eldest child, man or woman, is going to be the ruler of Numenor. Um, had that convention been in place from the beginning... That is to say, there is a there is one sense in which Silmarion should have been the ruler, and there is also a sense in which the later history of the Numenorians seems almost to bear that out. Silmarion is the one who is the head of that branch of the family of Elros, the eldest line, in fact, though female, though through the female line, but still the eldest line um, of the house of Elros. And that's where the kings of Gondor are going to come from. And not just the kings of Gondor. That's where the faithful are going to come from. It is those people, it is the descendants of Silmarion, who are going to remain faithful to the elves, to the Valar, and to Iluvatar when the whole rest of Numenor uh, uh, goes under. And before it goes under. Um, While the shadow is growing everywhere else, they are going to be the ones that hold out against the shadow. So there's this... um, to me, there's always been this what-if contained in the story of the kings of Numenor, the story of the rulers of Numenor, one should really say. Um, what if the, uh, you know, the, the descent had been through the eldest child all along? What if the line of Silmarion had been the kings rather than, uh, than uh, the line of Meneldur? So there's a sense in which at the very beginning of the story we see this fork in the road in the history of Numenor. Um, and again, it's not to say that like any bad choices have happened or that this is a that this is a consequence of of doing you know something wrong or anything like that. Again, you know, there's, there's nothing bad happening here, but things are you know things are declining. It's the turning of the tide, right, Minelder. Aldarion and Calame. The shadow hasn't come yet, but the tide has turned. And uh, and again, I don't. The, the way that this happens with Silmarion, you know, with the the not, not the disinheritance, but the non-inheritance of Silmarie, um strikes or Silmarion, sorry, uh, strikes me as again not an indication of like, oh, see, that was their first mistake. Nobody made a mistake. Nobody did anything wrong. Um, but uh, things fall apart. This is what this is what decline looks like. You know, this is what um, you know. Life in this mortal world again, like Minelder, like the confront the, the the choices that are going to confront Minelder, like the terms that are being debated by all these characters throughout the story. Um, 
when the road forks both sides of the road, you don't have the the black road and the white road. You know, uh, both roads uh, can be can be trodden virtuously and with good intentions. Both roads can lead to destruction. No, both roads probably will lead to destruction eventually, actually. Um, so, in some ways, I think that this story really does, in in a way, like the Turin story, capture um, an element of the human condition, of what it means to be human and mortal, what mortal cultures are like. Uh, and again, you know, we say, and I've said many times, uh, almost flippantly, like, oh, in Middle-earth we see everything is always declining and getting worse. It's easier to say that, but, but, but what does that mean? How does it actually look? How does that work? How does it happen? How do you get from point A to point B in that kind of thing? Well, in this story, I think we see a glimpse of what that looks like and how that and how that um, how that comes along. Um, anyway, these are some of my general reflections uh, on uh, uh, on this story. Um, now, oh, you know, uh, Gord, I want to recognize your point. Um, Gord says, "Isn't it easier for the lords of Andunier to remain the faithful because they're not the reigning line?" Yeah, I, you know. Um, what would have been, you know, would the line of Silmarion have stayed exactly like it was had they been had they been the rulers? Perfectly valid question. Um, uh, no idea. Uh, again, I think you know if we apply what I was just saying about roads here, if this is a fork in the road, you know, where like the the, the line of kings could have gone through Silmarion to her offspring, or it could have gone where it did through Meneldil, Meneldur, sorry, and down to his offspring. Um, uh, you know, by you know, again, what I was saying is that both—it's not that like there's one good path and one bad path. Um, anyway, the moral of the story is: the next time, uh, the next time you hear somebody spouting off that ridiculous tripe about the problem with Tolkien is that everything is always so black and white. Right? Everything in that world is just completely evil or completely good, and there are no shades of gray. Throw the story of Aldarion and Arendis at them. Um, Preferably the hardcover edition. That's the moral of the story. Uh, thanks everybody for joining us. I've kept you long again, um, but uh, uh, but anyway, uh, anyway, so I, I apologize for that. Um, uh, next week uh, we will be attempting to untangle the uh, remarkably uh, tangled story of Galadriel and Celeborn. So. Um, anyway, we, uh, uh, that should be a fun discussion. Uh, lots and lots to sort through there, so read that very carefully, uh, and we will look forward to that discussion next week. Thanks, everybody, for joining me. Bye.